0: I can hear you.
1: Great. We had some minor sound difficulties, but we're on. And I'm so glad to see everyone that has joined in the chat today. I see Cherie. I see Brad. Um, please, everyone, let us know if you can hear us as well. We're just trying to test things out. Um, yeah, I'm so happy that you could join us today. How are you?
0: I am doing well. I am... Uh, you know, like everybody else, uh, getting used to this new normal. But Mm -hmm. overall, I cannot complain. What about you? How are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay. It's been a bit of adjustment to the new normal as well with all these um, churches that are closed. Lately, a lot of my work is so much so physically helping churches build communities and being in church buildings. So it's been a bit of an adjustment into this new normal, this kind of pandemic world that everyone is trying to um, navigate as they try to maintain their ministries and they try to uh, address the new challenges that are emerging. Um, okay, good. So Norma and Brad are saying that the sound is good and it's all working. So we're on, good. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I've seen you just speak to so well that I was hoping um, to get some of your insights on in this very challenging time in which we find ourselves in which the church is facing so many new challenges and potential opportunities and there's so many challenges that exist out in the world. Um, Churches that are looking to address some of the things that are happening but are having a difficult time even coming to a decision amongst themselves how they're going to go forward and address like moving online or the social justice issues that are happening right now. Or I don't know if this is something that's happening across the board but it's something that I'm definitely seeing within the United Church of Canada. Is this something you're observing elsewhere?
0: I think uh, I'm going to separate them and start with the online part. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here in the uh, United States, it it was really interesting. Before the pandemic, uh, most congregations um, really wanted nothing to do with online ministry. They uh, sort of avoided it like the plague, so to speak. (laughs) But once the pandemic hit and they realized they were not going to be able to physically be in their buildings, Almost all of them adapted to some form of online presence, be it Facebook Live, um, Mm -hmm. some other form of streaming. Um, So even your small congregations, when they were sort of, I hate to use the word force, but it's true, forced to make that change, (laughs) they did actually adapt and make the change to do so. So uh, it, it, it was interesting, and I think part of the lesson there is one when their backs are against the wall, congregations actually can adapt and make changes. Um, Mm -hmm. unfortunately I wish they would do it before their backs were against the wall. Um, but second, I think it's an opportunity for these congregations moving forward when they can get back in their buildings, um, as they were previously to hopefully continue this presence and not just simply Go back to the way things were before the pandemic hit because many of them are finding even small congregations. They're connecting with people they never connected with before. Even some of their members who had either moved away or for physical reasons can't get there physically were now able to connect with them. So this has been a blessing for them to be able to make this move. Mm -hmm. And then I separated the social justice, I think, is a much more challenging issue. I think. congregations are still really trying to figure out what role they can play and how they can play that role. So I don't see as many congregations jumping into that fray. Uh, Typically, congregations that already had a social justice orientation are very active um, and engaged sort of in that dialogue. And you do see some other congregations starting to take some um, mini steps, which is critically important but you don't see, I think, sort of the the drive from the congregation as a whole. Of course, members are getting involved, but the congregation as a whole to sort of jump in that fray as they did with sort of getting online. It is my hope though that um, this will be different from the past and we will see sort of a a big move or push from congregations to actually try to have uh, some form of transformation where we actually are gonna make a difference um, to address these uh, injustices.
1: I hope so too. And one of the interesting things that has happened um, kind of this time around with the United Church of Canada in particular, um, it has taken the position of making a very public declaration as an anti-racist church. And that's something that it's put forward very publicly and very explicitly, but then at the same time, a lot of, I I find that there's a ton of momentum at the level of individual congregations that are doing the work, sort of like you described, there are individual congregations that that already have that social justice um, leaning and regardless of what the sort of national church does or doesn't do, that is the way that those congregations have operated for years and years and they will continue to do that with or without the, national level of declaration of being anti-racist or not, um, other congregations are waiting very much. So to hear that from the church and to hear that, okay, we're anti-racist, this gives us their permission to explore that further and to move ahead. So it seems like there is a bit of this separation between what happens on the ground level with congregations and all of the very, also very necessary, policy work and mandates that are being developed at the level of the national church and the initiatives that are being developed at the national church. But either way, it seems like sometimes, regardless of the commitment, sometimes churches can move a little bit out of pace with society. So where local activists are very quick and able to operate very quickly and very responsively, I've found that sometimes there could be a little bit of a lag in terms of the way that churches are able to act. Is there anything that comes to mind when I describe that lag that you think that might be a symptom of or might be indicative of?
0: Absolutely. I think um, a couple things come to mind and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna answer the question, but I'm gonna back up a bit and talk mm-hmm. about the Black Lives uh, Matter movement just for a second. When the Black Lives Matter movement sort of started, uh, started by three African-American women The, uh, the movement was, uh, very interesting because it was individuals who were outside of the church and here in the United States, that was significant because the civil rights movement and most of the other movements, um, related to racial justice for African Americans had come out of the church and the church was at the center and the forefront of what was taking place. Um, this was the first time you sort of saw a movement that started outside of the church. And when it started, you can actually see conflict between those who were in the church and those who were outside of the church. The difference this time is you have individuals who are in the church actually working um, with black lives matter uh, to make a difference for transformation. Um, So that, Now coming to your question, I think that the the lag is the, the church has always sort of been the central figure in the community and has been the one to sort of lead the community. So when Black Lives Matter started here in the United States, they found themselves actually for the first time, not the central figure. People were listening to activist voices, but they weren't necessarily listening to the preacher, the pastor, who had always been the, the key critical person. And if we're going to be honest, it usually was an African-American male that was in that figure. Um, so what you had happening is the church was suspicious and I think um, also standoffish to what was taking place because they felt like they were being displaced to a certain extent. Uh, this time around, it feels different and that the church is actually cooperating because they understand that a new day has dawned so that if they want to actually accomplish transformation, they're going to have to work with community activists and not work against community activists. Um, so I'm hoping we can close the gap of the lag that you were talking about. But the lag, I think, was created by the church feeling displaced. Um, I don't know if That would be similar in your context, but certainly here, I think that was the issue.
1: Yeah, and I think there's also another unique layer to add to that in our context. And I'm sure some of the ministers can chime in in the comments. Everyone is saying yes and truth. So what you're saying is really resonating. But I think one of the extra layers that I'd like to add on from our context is it is so necessary for the United Church especially to take this approach that you mentioned, letting the community sometimes lead and working in partnership with the community, because the United Church is a predominantly white church, although it is very well known for how progressive it is, very well known for how open and welcoming and um, social justice oriented it is. Despite all these things, it has come to be a very predominantly white church and Even the most committed social justice activists within the church who wants to see um, racial justice and who wants to see the church take these bold steps towards racial justice, they can't necessarily lead in the same way that a black church would because they are overwhelmingly white people. So there's this tension where there are allies who... I mean, there are some churches and congregations that just don't get it, want nothing to do with it, don't want to speak about it. And I'm not going there quite yet. No, but right, the churches right. who do want to find ways to affect change, but it, they are, again, overwhelmingly white congregations. How does how have you seen that that work? I mean, I, I know the racial tensions are a little bit different in the American context. In the Canadian context, they're a little bit covert, and we like to be a little bit more polite about it, but they are certainly there. So for an overwhelmingly white church who wants to take this approach to affecting change and partnering, what do you think that might look like? What do you think they might have to consider?
0: Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, your comment on covert, and then come back and answer your question again. So Mm -hmm. in the United States, I think it's interesting. If you um, go back to the uh, time of slavery, you, you of course had, most of the Southern states were slave holding states where you saw sort of the explicit, um, what we would call uh, dehumanization of, of Africans and then of course African-American people. But what many people don't realize is the North was still very prejudiced, um, And in the North, it would be more like what you're talking about in Canada, where it was more covert where people weren't explicitly um, holding slaves, but they were still treating Africans and African-Americans as second-class citizens. Um, So you still have those strands running through that today where you will have in the North, more polite racism in some instances. So you may not have someone flying a Confederate flag and. I'm um, talking about it from that perspective, but still, you still have racism, systemic racism, still the same. So the challenge becomes for congregations is that you have often in white congregations, individuals running a spectrum to being really social justice oriented, wanting to get out there and be really active to those individuals who are more conservative, who come from the South. Um, in this case, to generalize, of course, not everybody from the South is conservative. Um, to those who from the North still um, really aren't um, wanting to engage actively in social justice and are sort of polite, but still hold some racist views. So I think the challenge is, is that white congregations often, even when they would become mobile or allies, you have A few people in a congregation that want to do so, but it's hard to get a whole congregation mobilized to to do that work. So what you end up with is individuals in a congregation that are willing to join forces, which is often what we have to do is find those individuals and their voices um, can help to uh, propel and move us forward. It would be wonderful if we can actually move where we can see white congregations as a whole talk about sort of policing and why policing has to change and why they themselves want to be sort of at the forefront of and making that happen. Because the reality is, is that African-Americans for years have been talking about policing issues. Um, so this, this is not a new issue. Um, the difference can come when our allies start saying, no, we want this to change. That's where their voices can really make a difference and um, sort of moving and having this transformation take place in society. So that's where I can see when it comes to some of these issues where for years the African-American community has been fighting this fight and pushing to rock uphill. We, we you know, this is nothing new. But Mm -hmm. for others, their eyes are finally being opened. So them speaking out and saying, I'm not going to stand for this. No, we actually want change to happen. That's when I think change can take place.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like everyone has to approach what is happening from their own unique position. So even if you're the most well-intentioned ally, you have to be very conscious of the role that you take within the movement. But necessary role that people with lived experience of what's happening the necessary role with people of people who have scholarly knowledge of the long history of what's happened and the trends and what might happen next can take and you as or someone as a newer ally and a newer um, person to this movement who is happy to get involved needs to really think and sit with it and perhaps their position isn't at the front, perhaps the position isn't the loudest voice or the leader or the person directing what is happening, but it's it's to listen, it's to learn, it's to support, so even sort of the the newest person to the movement, a white person, a white leader in the church, there is still somewhere that they can affect change and participate, but it doesn't look the same as the way perhaps you or I might um, lead or work within a movement.
0: Absolutely, I think what you said is 100% true. And Mm -hmm. it's a willingness to uh, sort of listen and play that secondary role, but yet still be active. That is critically important. As you know, uh, w- when you're used to sort of taking a lead, it's hard to take a step back and to let someone else lead, uh, regardless of what the issue is, but that is exactly what is needed.
1: Yeah, and especially if you're the minister and the leader of a church, a large community, it can be hard to um, take that more humble stance of of the listener and of the learner but it, it's so necessary in this work and I wanted to move back to that tension you described between um, people within a congregation who might be um, mobilized to act and who might be very like interested in particular issues but even within congregations you'll face that tension where there are members maybe they're central members on a particular committee or board who are slowing that process because perhaps they want to learn more or push the decision off until a later date. And it just gets to the point where nothing is being done. Um, I'd love if you could speak a little bit towards some of the process-oriented aspects of actually pushing decisions forward within a church just based on the governance structure and all of these Committees and boards that the average person might not be familiar with but just because you are a very motivated minister And I know very many that are very motivated very committed to social justice That doesn't mean that within your church social justice initiatives will take off just like that or if you're a very motivated committee member or um, Congregation member it does not mean that your church will just like that prioritize the way that you're spending resources towards those very necessary initiatives at this challenging time. What are some of those things that you've seen emerge in governance structures and more process-oriented aspects of decision-making that can sometimes slow down even the most motivated minister or congregation member? Yeah,
0: I appreciate the question and it gives me an opportunity to sort of uh, talk a little bit about my book where I talk about Mm decision-making. And I uh, firmly believe, of course, everything starts with prayer uh, for when you're moving forward. And in prayer, I think for a governance process that what is critical is um, discerning. And that discernment process should really lead a congregation and a governance structure to really think about their mission. And I think this is the challenge that many congregations uh, face and where oftentimes they uh, sort of, I would say, get off track a little bit. oftentimes a congregation's mission is, can be really clear about sort of uh, naming their values and what they believe they should be doing. And when you're making decisions based upon your mission, it usually helps you to know how to move forward in terms of social justice issues um, or the other issues related to the church. The challenge is when we start just making issues because Bob is my friend or Sandy is a person I like. Uh, But we're not really doing it based upon following our mission. That's often where we get in trouble and when things start to get off track. So I think one of the critical pieces and one of the simplest pieces, uh, and it sounds like it can be almost too simplistic, is when we're making decisions, we should make sure that the decision is aligned with our mission so that we can make sure we're doing the right thing. Having said that, I think some congregations need to relook at their mission. Um, you know, because I think that, of course, if you have an interest in social justice, you need to make sure your mission in some way allows you to do that work, um, so that you know the mission allows you to move forward in a way to that actually make decisions that um, can make a difference and transform your community and your mission simply isn't so stuck on insider uh, sort of language. And by insider language, you know, I'm talking about things that just impact the congregation themselves, but have no hope of actually transforming the community or the outside world outside of them. So the mission has to be one that can, that can actually make an impact on the, the community and the outside world. I think the second piece after the mission is we have to evaluate um time to time if we're staying on track and if we are making an impact you know sometimes when we make a decision and we're moving forward things can be going well for a while but then after a while for whatever reason again something may happen they're getting off track but we don't evaluate to say we need to make a shift it may be that we're protesting against a particular agency and at first the protests are working But after three months, for whatever reason, the protests aren't working. But if we don't evaluate and we just continue to protest, then we're starting to lose our impact. But if we evaluate and see now we need to shift gears, do something different, that, again, allows us to think about a different strategy that still aligns with our mission for how to move forward. So evaluating um, is critically important. And the yeah, third and I, thing I would, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Okay. No, I was going to say, I think no, no, that's so, it's so important because it just start, made me think. Um, so, for example, some of the churches that I work with will say things like our goal or a mission is to have a more diverse congregation or to have a multicultural yeah. church. But what I'm hearing from you when I think about um evaluating and perhaps measuring measuring the effectiveness of what's happening, a goal can be something that's more measurable and something that could be more subject to evaluation and putting like benchmarks in place could be we want to diversify our board. We want to make sure that on this particular committee, we have whatever is measurable. We have two members from the community who aren't necessarily a part of the church, but have an investment in the church on this board by Christmas. Like that is something that is more aligned with what you're describing, more okay, we can assess is this working or is this not? Whereas when you have these big, lofty goals of just being diverse or multicultural or affecting change or racial justice, the, they're so big and abstract that sometimes they actually can mean nothing at all. So that was just something that popped into my mind as you described having the ability to actually assess these things and having them very clearly stated in your mandate or your mission. My mission is to not just be diverse, but to like diversify our boards, to make sure that we're investing X amount of our resources in these sorts of initiatives. So those are the more clear, measurable, I think, sorts of goals that you're um, referring to.
0: Absolutely, because with the and those steps, when you take them, obviously lead to bigger steps that you can take because once yeah. you add two people from the community who diversify the board, now it puts you in contact with others where you can actually possibly move towards, I would use the language, a beloved community that you'd hope to build. Um, the challenge is when we say we just want to be diverse, often what happens is we talk about it and we say all the right things, but we never actually take any steps
1: Mm
0: -hmm. to actually make that happen. So, so you're absolutely right when you can actually put it into those sort of small steps that we're going to name two people by Christmas. And then that's easy to evaluate. You know, if you've done it, you know, if you haven't done it and you can adjust your decision at that point in time. Mm -hmm.
1: And you mentioned the third step.
0: Yeah, and then the, the, I was going to mention um, the other thing I think that is critically important is then forming good habits um, as a congregation and making that a part of your DNA. And that happens when you're aligning with your mission, when you're doing the evaluation and you, everybody knows this is the practice. And when you start forming those habits over time, your decision making actually is going to get better and the congregation as a whole is going to benefit from that. Uh, One of the challenges I think we have in many of our congregations today and why so many of our committees and our boards are dysfunctional is we form bad habits. and we continue to live those bad habits out. uh, And it takes a while to sort of turn that around. So we really have to basically now move towards forming good habits and make that the process that drives us forward instead of the bad habits um, pushing us forward. Uh, I talk about sort of in the book that when congregations get to a point where they just constantly are forming these bad habits and making bad decisions, they basically become what I call a swamp congregation Mm -hmm. where they become inwardly focused. Basically the goal is just for somebody to come and preach to them and they have their own sort of Sunday worship. They really don't care about the community or anything else happening and they really are going to be happy for the church to close when they die off because they have no interest in anything else happening. We have far too many of those congregations in the United States. I hope you don't have as many there in your context yeah, in Canada.
1: We have a um, lot, <laughs> but, but,
0: but But it's a real challenge. Um, and when congregations reach that point, it becomes really difficult to uh, create a new mentality within those congregations to get them to, to shift gears.
1: And how are I mean, what are some of those approaches to developing those good habits? And maybe you can speak about what's next as you move on from being a swamp congregation into some a congregation that's more outward looking. I'd like um, I'd love for you to share uh the models that you've developed in your book of the different sorts of congregations as they move through this spectrum of being very inward focused, to being outward focused. But first, if you could talk a little bit about transforming those bad habits, what are some of those bad habits that negatively affect decision making and can just have critical decisions lag on for years and years? We're again, just completely out of pace with the way that Society operates nowadays sometimes there are opportunities that spring up to partner with the community or to respond to what's happening in The neighborhood that churches really need to be prepared to respond to like this sometimes and that doesn't mean that they need to um, Make it in a way make the decision in a way that is not thoughtful It just means that they should have been doing the work way prior to when this challenge emerged so they can make the decision quickly. So it still has to be a thoughtful decision. It's not like just jumping at the latest challenge. It's just making sure that you're prepared along the way and making the right sorts of decisions. But what are some of those bad habits that can negatively impact their ability to partner or negatively impact their ability to make informed decisions about how to move forward based on what's happening around them outside of the church doors
0: in the world. Let me give an example. Uh, Mm -hmm. So think of a congregation that considers itself a family church. Mm -hmm. So all the decisions they make are about attracting families and, you know, they want a children's choir and they want to do all of these things related to family activities. And it made sense for that congregation 30 years ago. Uh, when the community had young families and the community was coming to the church and the church was in that direction. But if we move forward to now, when all those individuals have grown up and they still are making decisions based upon being a family church, but now there are no families in the community, you have the exact problem you're talking about. You're out of step with where the community is And you continue to make decisions and to um, to use a sort of business term to market yourself as a family church, even though, realistically speaking, that makes no sense when right now you should be thinking about ministries for people in their middle age or who are, are older at this point in time. But you haven't shifted gears to making decisions that fit your context. So, so the key um, here is we have to make sure that our decisions make sense, not just for who we want to be, but the context in which we're doing ministry. Um, too often we're making decisions about who we want to be. You know, I would love to be a millionaire so I can help all kind of people throughout the world. That hasn't happened. Um, so I have to make decisions about what I can do realistically based on what, what I have. And too often congregations don't do that or do that well. Um, so that's critically important. Mm-hmm. The second piece I would say um, that goes along with that is congregations also have to make sure that they are aware of what is going on in their community. So the fact that you continue to market yourself as a family church, but there are no families real in the community means that you are doing nothing to get to know your neighbors or what is taking place. Um, so that you, you have to have some idea of what is taking place in your community because that's going to impact your decision making. Um, you know, I've seen too many congregations in this context to sort of continue this sort of narrative that they sit in a boardroom and they make a decision, say, what we need is a daycare because we have a daycare. We can attract all kind of families. Well, there are no families in your community, so you can open a daycare, but nobody's going to come. And that's exactly what happens. And then they get frustrated. But if you actually had taken the time, you would have known that was not a good decision to make. So, mm-hmm. so to make good decisions, we always have to be sort of contextually aware and be in communication with what is taking place in our neighborhood so that our decisions aren't made in a void, but they're actually made with the knowledge of what is actually needed and will this make sense um, in connecting with other individuals. Uh, I'll, I'll just I'll pause there and let you comment and I'll I'll go on for how we can move along that spectrum of congregations.
1: And I think it's so important for congregations to take very seriously how they're going to go about developing that contextual knowledge, because sometimes there is a hope that people will come into the church and that's how you get to know them and you get to know what the challenges are and what's happening in the neighborhood. But perhaps also sometimes going back to those original um, an example of goals and having the diversified board, perhaps sometimes the goal can be diversifying the involvement of the church and having congregation members join the board of other organizations and going out into the community. And that's how you can learn about organizations. So instead of waiting for people to come to you and come into the church, it's to actually go out into the community and be involved in a very meaningful way and what's happening, because to learn, to have that contextual knowledge, to meaningfully engage and develop those relationships, it's not just reading over the neighborhood demographics. It's not just visiting once a month and volunteering, like to truly develop relationships with people. it. I mean, just think about family and friends. It it takes years sometimes, and it takes a very serious, and intentional approach to relating to someone. So I think that's so important. And one of the things that I wanted to mention and just thinking about when you described that um, gap between what is actually happening out in the world and what the church believes um, the world needs or the neighborhood needs or is needed based on their own, Uh, what's happening within the church or their own ideas. Sometimes that happens within the United Church along generational lines. A lot of congregations skew a little bit older, a lot of boards skew a little bit older. So oftentimes the surrounding communities and what they need are the needs of a slightly younger generation. So that also adds an interesting tension sometimes between the church and between what's happening in the broader neighborhood. Sometimes people envision this the church just to be, uh, well, in the context of a lot of United Churches that I work with, they envision the church to be just this out of touch and sometimes a little bit stagnant in um the issues that it's prioritizing uh whereas the world is moving so quickly and they associate the neighborhood and the outside world to be a little bit more youth focused and quick moving and um like that is an interesting tension that i can sometimes have difficulties with contending with as it comes to helping churches connect with neighborhood groups, because sometimes it's about having generations connect and there's a little bit of that tension there. So I don't know if you could speak to that and getting to know your neighbor and getting to know your community and what those generational lines sometimes bring about in terms of challenges.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I do want to say it's uh, I call sort of this um, church is winning people to come. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Field of Dreams. Um, But in the movie, Field of Dreams, there's a line where he says, build it and they work and they will come. So Mm -hmm. congregations have this sort of thinking that we built it. So now the people will come to us. Um, Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that is not true. Um, The people do not have to come to you. And in most cases are not. We are going to have to go to the people. If we want to have an impact, so uh, is that for, for those who are familiar with that movie, we can't live in that sort of "build a dreams" world. Generationally speaking, um, I, here in the United States, I um, in some of the work I've done, I talked a, a little bit about the different African American generational categories, and uh, the church. When people talk about sort of the Black Church in the United States they're really referring to what is the civil rights generation. And what I mean by that is, um, you think of a figure like, uh, Martin Luther King jr. Uh, and some of these other individuals who sort of were key figures in the civil rights movement, John Lewis, who unfortunately just passed, um, these individuals, uh, were sort of, when people think of a church, the picture of what people think of when they see see the church. Um, And that generation had a critical impact in this country on forming and shaping what the church looks like. After that generation, I talk about the black consciousness generation. Uh, They're very similar to the civil rights generation, but one of the differences is that uh, if you go back, none of the Sunday school material or any of those things were ethnically appropriate for African-Americans. And they're the ones who started the Black is Beautiful movement and start mm-hmm. creating their own Sunday school and Bible study material. So that we can sort of uh, see ourselves um, in these stories um, as we do this work. So they're responsible for that. And then after uh, sort of the Black consciousness, um you have what I call the integrationists. And integrationists in this country were those individuals who sort of uh, benefited from what the civil rights generation did. So they were the ones who were bused uh, to different schools. They're the ones who integrated neighborhoods, integrated um, universities uh, and things of that nature. So, so they're sort of the, the bridge community from sort of uh, what took place prior to them moving towards uh, sort of the last category I talk about when I did this work, which it's the hip hop generation. And the hip hop generation sort of um, is the furthest away from the civil rights and the civil rights generation is often very frustrated with them because in their mind, they did all this work for this generation who does not seem to appreciate what was done, Um, which is not true You know, there's a lot that that goes in there, But, but the challenge is for the hip hop generation, the way the civil rights generation thinks about and comes at church doesn't work for them. So it's not that they're opposed to God or religion, but they are opposed to the way that the civil rights generation basically is approaching church for the most part so that you get that generational tension. They don't want to sit in a meeting in the church all day. They're thinking, why do I need to do that? Uh, you know, we could accomplish so much more if we actually went out and did something. So the idea of sitting and planning and all this other stuff, they're thinking we could have had the project done in this amount of time. So, so while both of them have the same goal in mind, the way to get to that goal is, is very different, um, just to give sort of a concrete example. They don't think you need to be in worship for three hours, you know, <laughs> that, you know that, that doesn't make sense to them. Like, I want to hang out with my friends and everything. I, yeah, I'll come do it, but I'm not going to do it for three hours. So you, you get these sort of tensions that take place. And I think part of it is there's got to be an understanding that church can be done differently. Um, It doesn't mean you're giving up everything that was critically important to the civil rights generation because they were in this country critical um, for what the church um, has done and continues to do. But it also does mean that we have to allow change to take place, that we have to trust this generation um, and their instincts. So if they wouldn't do an hour service, that's going to be okay you know, that we can worship God in an hour and it's going to be all right. That we can not have meetings, you know, for two hours. We can just go out yes. and do the work <laughs> and get it done. So there's got to be a willingness of trust. Um, you know, they talk about handing the baton over, but you can't grasp the baton tightly, <laughs> you know, while you're trying to hand it over. You got to actually loosen your hand and allow the baton to be passed along. Yeah. Yeah. And the challenge is loosening so that the baton can be passed. So I think that tension, there's got to be some relaxing to realizing that it's not going to fall apart if some of these things change, because in most Mm -hmm. cases, they're not wanting to change the core of the gospel. They just want to change the way we go about thinking about the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so if we want to see more involvement by younger generations, we have to be willing to allow some of those changes to, to take place.
1: That's so interesting. Cause I, I mean, I think in terms of the United Church, one of the ways that, I mean, and there are many ways, but one of the ways in which those generational tensions have been framed because again, it's an overwhelmingly white church. So it wouldn't necessarily right. be in terms of the civil rights generation, but it's oftentimes in terms of the boomers, baby boomers and millennials. And I hear millennials sometimes make like these very broad statements about boomers or baby boomers and what they're like. And But I sit and think sometimes and I try to describe to some of my peers how like radical that generation actually was and how much that generation actually changed and did and accomplished and pushed forward and it's just so interesting that that is where the tension is when I find that we have so much in common. And often there is this forgetting of the fact that there are so many generations in between it's framed in terms of these boomers and millennials, but then there's all these forgotten generations in between that are just like, Hey, what about us? And, um, I don't know if it's a sign of the times or people are just living much longer, but I find it at churches and congregations and even in workplaces, looking at church staff, there are so many generations in a single workplace. Whereas if you look at the average organization that doesn't exist, organizations often like if you look at like a tech company, they'll often skew all very young. Or if you look at yes. another sort of organization, they'll all skew very old. But I find churches are one of the few organizations that will have like five generations in one workplace, like five or even I don't know six generations in one congregation. You will have someone that is, Ninety years old sitting on the same committee as someone who is eighteen year old, eighteen years old, and having to come together and make decisions and find common ground, and that is perhaps, I mean, unique in the sense that in most workplaces and most um, social organizations, that's just not what you see oftentimes, and a lot of the tension in terms of passing that baton really resonated with me because I I, I often see very engaged, very um, committed board members, committee members who have had their position for many, many years and they do amazing work come to that moment where they then need to pass the baton, except in this case, they have no one to pass it to you because they've never done that work of succession planning. They've never done that work of seriously considering the younger generation. Although I don't want to just frame it as a one way thing because the younger generation has lots to say about them as well. But just That's if we right. go back to your point about passing the baton, Oftentimes, in the cases I'm seeing, there is no one to grab that baton, and then that board member, that committee member is so burnt out because they've carried the baton for so many years. They've done this wonderful work for so many years, and even if they want to let that baton go, even if they want to pass it on, there is literally no one there to take it, which is unfortunate because some of the positions are actually... they involve quite a bit of responsibility and are quite complex. For example, if you're sitting on a finance committee, you can't just have someone take your position the next day. You actually have to do quite a bit of training for someone to be equipped to take on that position. So some people think of these boards and these committees as you can just kind of come or go or participate as you are available but sometimes it's very serious in terms of finance and property and community relations like these are long-standing relationships there are quite complex processes that are involved and I think churches like any organization always need to think about secession planning from the moment someone takes a position they need to think okay how many years can I really very seriously do this and who can step in if I ever need to take a vacation or if I am looking to pass on that role to the next generation. So I think those are the tensions that seem to emerge and that baton passing is just, (laughs) it's very tricky.
0: (laughs) It it is, and I would say, um, this gets back to sort of uh, decision-making and planning that we should, as you say, when we take the position, we should already be mentoring somebody else um, so that you know when we have the job and of course we're doing it in our first year uh, or two years but then you know what you should be doing is the person you're mentoring you should then start having them to actually sort of doing the work and then sort of your last year you sort of step back and support them in the work and then you step out and then they start doing it mentoring the next person so that um, it really should be more of uh, going back to the olden days where you know you sort of uh, had people who work for the blacksmith or something they were always mentoring their next person who who came along but but in the church we need to do the same thing that the the goal should be thinking in terms of I'm going to serve in this position three or four years um, at most but even as I start, I'm already mentoring the person who's going to take over from me, who then, of course, will then start doing that same process uh, with someone else. Because uh, the challenge is the longer I stay in a position, the harder it's going to be to find somebody else to come mm-hmm. in behind me in that position. Um, because, you know, it, it's, it's going to be difficult because people are going to say, Well, they've been there for 20, 25 years. There's no way I can follow that person. So so Mm -hmm. if we upfront sort of think about, you know, three or four years and my goal is going to be already setting up the next person, uh, we would be doing ourselves a big favor in congregations.
1: Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of shorter terms when it comes to like serving on committees and boards. It's a little bit controversial, but that is just my stance. Even if you're someone who can serve for 25 years, perhaps you need to serve for five years, take a three-year break, let someone else take on that role, be trained in it, and then come back a few years later and just off and on allow someone else to be trained, allow someone else to take on the reins. And I think doing that is also an opportunity to deepen relationships between congregation members and also with the community because you're showing, I I trust this younger board member, I trust this congregation member, or I I trust someone else to have the opportunity to know the church and to work in the church in this way. Whereas when you don't hand off the baton, even for a few years, those younger members coming in might feel like you don't trust them. So you want butts in the pews, but you don't want them to touch anything, you don't want them to do anything, you don't want them to mess anything up. And I think that's such an important sign of trust when you're asking someone to join you in community, like what sorts of various series what sorts of very serious decision making powers are you giving them? What kinds of resources are you providing them with so they're not just Sitting there to sit there in a very tokenized way like what can they actually do and how can they truly feel a part of that community so I think I, I think when that happens um some of the older generation will often find some of those things that you described like perhaps the younger generation will run meetings slightly different and it won't be a two three hour meeting it will be a slack meeting with a few emails it'll be on zoom and maybe like a quick 20 minute in person to check in it will just be different and it's not necessarily wrong some of those things are generational some of those things are cultural but it's not about the mission of the church that's being changed it's the expression of that mission that's Sort of being changed if we go back to that mission and those goals. It's just about the way that it's being expressed that's being changed. And I think that's okay. And that's something that if you want more, if you want new and diverse people within the church, that's, you just have to give up power sometimes. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And I love the way you expressed it, um, thinking about it as an expression of the mission, not changing the mission, because I think the challenge is too often. People perceive it as changing, um, the mission are changing what they've built. And the reality is, in many cases, people are trying to honor it. It's just exactly. that the way they want to go about doing it is a different expression than the way you would do it. And it doesn't mean that their expression is wrong. Their expression is different, but they're still okay. trying to honor the thing that you've built.
1: That is exactly it. And I like the way that you phrase that, that sometimes people are just trying to honour what you've built and not to change it or disrupt it. And when you honour that in a way that is sustainable and culturally relevant in the current times, it's just it's going to look different, unfortunately. And I also want to speak for a moment um, about the other side of that dynamic as a young person, and I will just speak from my own experience. I know not everyone has the same experience, but oftentimes uh, the younger generation can feel like we know it all. And I have had my moments where I don't necessarily, um, like early on, I might not necessarily have the whole picture or the whole history of why a particular decision is made and you can make snap judgments oh that's silly why don't they do it this way why is that happening and maybe this happens between the civil rights generation and the hip-hop generation that you described as well and I think it's so important as young people coming into a church newly or perhaps just developing a new relationship with a congregation member or a a board within a church that you've been in your your whole entire life, you, very, you take seriously those opportunities for mentorship and those opportunities to learn and listen because I think the older generation has a ton to learn from the younger generation, but it also goes the other way. And there are also opportunities to have that long-term look at what has happened that there is no possible way I could have just in terms of the number of years I've been on this earth like there are so many things that I might not be aware of that can really help inform the way that we carry forward the mission of the church and don't just throw everything out with the new things that are coming in you need to really take seriously those opportunities to learn and listen and to benefit from the skill sets of someone who is who has just been raised in a different context so younger people have like they're digital natives, and I have all sorts of tech skills and social media skills and things that I can bring into the church. But at the same time, someone who is raised in a generation that isn't like a digital native has all sorts of community building, relationship building skills. Imagine how much work you had to put into building a community within your neighborhood without having Facebook and email. And like every generation has something so different to bring to the table. And I just think that that sharing of knowledge and sharing of approaches has to go both ways, and we're so quick to throw out the old approach or the old way of doing things and just move on to the new. So it's just, I think that two way, I don't know if I should call it mentorship because I don't know if more senior people want to feel like they're being mentored by youth, but I, I think um, there needs to, yeah, maybe there needs to be mentorship that also goes the other way. So we're mentoring. The more senior leaders and the more senior leaders also have opportunities to mentor us, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's the right way to frame it, but.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely true. I think um, one of the things that is important is to know the history of a congregation, a neighborhood, or or whatever. You know, Mm -hmm. oftentimes um, you can learn why people feel a certain way or why certain decisions have been made. Um, once you actually dig in and learn the history of what has taken place um, in a particular place, you'll learn that um, literally uh, here in some churches when people would buy pews, that a family has owned a pew. So that's why they sort of have their uh, fill, their feathers get ruffled when somebody else sits in that pew. Uh, And and it's not them. So even though there should be no assigned seats in the church, but the history is their family basically has purchased that pew back in the time when that happened. So they feel like it literally is their family pew. So it at least allows you to understand why they're reacting the way they do and to work with them differently. And the same thing is true. Um, you know, as you dig into communities of learning the names of streets and who they were named after and the important history behind that. So, so it absolutely is a two-way street where young people, when they learn the history, they will sometimes learn that there's a reason people get set in their ways because, I mean, these things have important markers in their life um, and what they don't wanna see disappear are those markers. So Mm -hmm. if you can understand that history, it helps you to sort of um, have a different dialogue than you may have if you're just simply dismissing what is taking place.
1: Yeah, and it is hard. And that's why I point to myself as an example because (laughs) even I have had my moments where I need to, stop and listen and understand and go through that process of thinking about the long history of, of what has occurred in this particular church that exists as an opportunity for them to deepen relationships or sometimes exists as a, a, a barrier to deepening relationships with a broader community. And it's, it's just, it's so important. Every church has a history that should be honored and should be drawn upon in a way that is productive hopefully in these efforts to respond to what's happening locally and to deepen relationships. And I wanted to close out with going back to um, your model. And so you talked about the swamp congregation that's very inward looking. So take us through what, what should that congregation be hoping to become and what is sort of the ideal archetype for a church that is very responsive and engaged and is able to make decisions in a way that's informed and thoughtful and connected to community. So what is that swamp congregation aiming to become?
0: Yeah, so uh, I sort of briefly described a swamp. So the the next step, because when I thought about this, I think too often we try to move a church from zero to 10. And I wanted to make sure that that's not what I am suggesting. Some congregations, the next step would be a reservoir. So if you move from a swamp to a reservoir, in my mind, that is a huge move. And that that by itself might be where a congregation ends up. And as a reservoir congregation, you actually have started looking outward and making those community connections. Um, it's a congregation that um, perceives the importance of Uh, Making sure that they're not simply inward focused but that they actually are making contact with the community. The challenge with many reservoir congregations is their mentality, though, still is I want to do something for the community instead of doing something with the community. Uh, And by that, I mean, if you take, for example, uh, um, feeding uh, the hungry. So what they would perceive is they're doing something for people who don't have food, but they don't really see them part of their community. So mm-hmm. they're welcoming them to come by and get something, but they're not welcoming them to be a part of the space and to be a part of the decision-making process. They simply see them as people who come get food, they'll go away till they come back next week and do the same thing. So they are making the community connections and this is critically important and they are doing good in the community. Um, But the next step that I talk about is a canal, and the image of a canal, um, canal sort of run and bodies of water flow into a canal and body waters flow out of a canal as it runs along. And what a canal does is it allows those outside of itself to influence it like that body of water. So again, using the feeding ministry, those individuals are not perceived simply sort of as clients where you're just giving them goods, but you are they're with you in the terms of that you might put one of them on the board and they can impact the way you think about doing other ministry in the community. Um, they help you in a decision-making process. So it's really an effort to be inclusive of, of voices in the way that you do your ministry work and not simply doing things for people. Um, It is possible that a congregation could have swamp ministry, reservoir ministries, and canal ministries Mm -hmm. all at the same time. So Mm -hmm. even though you may have a dominant characteristic of one of these types, you also can have different areas that can fit into these categories. The goal, hopefully, is to have more canal ministries where you're making decisions and being influenced by those who are outside that are helping you to actually make that impact instead of simply inwardly focused, being satisfied with, I just want this to be here for me. And when I'm gone, I'm happy with that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's just, we're at such an interesting moment that seems to be pushing that forward a little bit now that we are forced outside of buildings and we're looking out into what is happening in the world and looking out into the fact that in these moments of crisis, um, some of the most essential people we're observing now in society, like grocery store, workers, delivery, folk, all sorts of people that perhaps within the church in terms of the more senior leadership or the people who are often in position to make decisions don't reflect and we're starting to realize like the essential people who are out in the world the essential people who are there to step in in moments of crisis that are just so important in our community that we want to be a part of our community don't look like what they used to look like in society and the church has an opportunity to step in now that we're outside of I mean, most people are working from home. Some church services have resumed in physical buildings, but we're, we're outside and we're coming together as a community to try to make sure that everyone is taken care of in these very challenging times and has access to food and uh, their finances are okay at, in these times that everyone is losing their jobs. And I, ju- I just think we're at such an important, critical moment where the church can work together with what is happening in the world and the organizations that seem to be swooping in and the people who seem to be doing this just such important work, like how can the church support them by offering them not just food and financial resources, but truly partnering and truly hearing what the challenges are of these very essential workers, of people who seem to be holding up society at this moment. I think the church has just such an important role and similarly with social justice and some of the challenges that are happening right now, even if you are primarily white congregation, it sounds like you've identified a role that the church can still take on, even if it is a more listening and um, supporting role, there is also strength in that role. So I hope, at least my hope for the United Church is that this moment is taken very seriously and that all congregations are doing what they can from a canal perspective to just be relevant in their advocacy and their activism and a, instead of inward looking and perhaps directing decision-making and resources in the, in the wrong ways based on what is happening right now. So I, I guess that's just a hope that I have for the church as you identify and speak to what that canal congregation or canal initiative can look like i hope that the united church and i'm seeing a lot of people echo these things in the comments that they they just want to see this form of partnering and they want to see this increase in relevance so i don't know if there's any parting words that you can leave the church with and all those people who are very well-intentioned and trying to address social issues from their own unique position and who just hope to do the right thing in this moment. Yeah,
0: I just wanna echo what you um, just described and say that during this time, as we're making the connections with these individuals, my hope and prayer is, and what makes the Canal Congregation is that we actually allow them to influence the way that we will move forward in the future, that we don't see this as sort of just something we're doing during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. but that we see this as what we're called to do as the church and that we will continue to want to listen to their voices and have those voices influence what we do as we move forward. That, that to me is what a canal congregation does. And when a congregation is at its best and has nothing to do with size, you don't have to be large to make that happen. Um, it's a matter of taking the time to make those connections with other individuals and being willing to listen to them as you move forward. And if we do that as congregations, we are going to uh, transform our communities and eventually transform the world so that I believe everything you described is possible.
1: Great. Well, I wanted to thank you so much again for joining us today. and your book. I mean, I don't want to be too salesy, but it's a good one. So
0: (laughs) I appreciate that. And I appreciate the invitation. I've enjoyed this immensely.
1: (laughs) Thank you. And I hope people will check out the book and I hope people will um, look to engage further, whether it's in the comments. Um, I can try to hop into the comments and see if there are things that can be addressed further. I'm seeing a lot of things sort of come up and a lot of people thanking us for these conversations. And it's just, I hope people continue to engage. So I'll hop into the comments and check that out. But thank you again. And thank you for all of your amazing work in this area and your books. And it's just, even in my own work, it has been something that has really shaped my approach. And I'm just, I'm so thankful and appreciative of the work that you do. So thank you again.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. And I look forward to your book, What Did You (laughs) Do?
1: I hope so. Fingers crossed one day. <laughs> yeah. Great. All right. Thank, you.
0: Thank you. Bye. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>